we saw that short term, if you only serve people performance creative, they will convert faster, but over time they will drop out and drop off your funnel. Whereas those that are seeing a steady dose of brand creative long term will open more products and convert at a higher rate. Welcome to Building Better CMOs, a podcast about how markers get stronger and smarter. I am Greg Stewart, the CEO of the nonprofit MMA Global. That voice you heard at the top is Andrea Brimmer, the Chief Marketing and PR Officer of Ally Financial. She's been with the company for 15 years, eight of them as CMO. And before that, she worked at the illustrious advertising agency, Campbell Ewald. At Ally, Andrea helped build an online-only banking brand back when people thought that was a risky idea. Today on Building Better CMOs, we're going to be talking about Ally's commitment to investing equally in men's and women's sports, the research MMA and Ally have done together to try to understand the value of brand marketing the way a CFO would appreciate it, and what it takes to transition from account manager to marketing leader. This podcast is all about the challenges that marketers face and unlocking the true power that marketing can have, what does real leadership in marketing look like, and how do you most effectively drive growth today? Andrea Brimmer from Ally is going to tell us right after this. Andrea Brimmer, welcome to Building Better CMOs. Thank you, Craig. It's really nice to be here with you today. Hey, listen, just for context of people here. So, you know, listen, you're a CMO of Ally Financials. Is that the actual legal name? Yeah, so it's Ally Financial. We just say Ally, but Chief Marketing NPR Officer. In that role with Ally, okay, you were the first CMO in the in the seat for this role. You're like the oldest new company in the world, I guess, something like that, right? <laughs> GMAC yes. started in 1919. Yeah, rebranded in the middle of a financial crisis. I'm sure that has a lot of fun stories to it. What is the story? Give me the background. The here. story is when GM was going through its bankruptcy. Uh, back in 06, 07 timeframe, GMAC was its captive auto finance company. And GM spun GMAC out and sold it to Cerberus to create some liquidity and an influx of capital. I came in at that time. I actually came in as brand executive. There was a CMO in the seat uh, who was actually the first CMO, by, a guy by the name of Sanjay Gupta. You may know Sanjay. Oh, Sanjay from, yeah, Sanjay, who was eventually then at Allstate, right? He was on the global board. He was my chair at one point. Yes, yeah, okay, exactly. got it. You That's know funny. Sanjay. Yep. So Sanjay was my boss. And, and there was a very small group of us that created the Ally brand. We knew we had to go to market as an independent marketplace competitor. We wanted to start a digital bank. Uh, we didn't have the liquidity to build banks and a branch system. We didn't have the capital to buy a branch system. And so we made a bet the same year that the smartphone was launched that we would come to market with a completely digital financial services offering. And it sounds funny to say that now, 15 years later, when everybody's banking in the palm of their hand. But it was a huge challenge to convince people to send their money to the Internet. And that was exactly what we had to do. So let's talk about the consumer side of that, but just from a business perspective, even from the private equity guys who bought the business or bought it out, how much consternation was there to be an online only bank? Or was that really, that was the vision? We were going to do that no matter what. That was the vision. I mean, look, there was no other choice. We had taken a $17 billion TARP loan. Uh, we had over 15,000 dealers that we were serving with retail automotive loans, wholesale loans. We had to 
have an influx of capital. The markets were closed, if you remember back then. So there was really no other choice but to go with this model. And candidly, I think when we began, we really underestimated how big this franchise could really be. And we started with two products, auto loans and savings products. And we had nothing else. And so over the course of that time, we have become full-scale digital financial services, mortgages, an invest platform, uh, personal lending, credit card, and all online. And so, you know, you think about going from zero to what we are today, top 25 bank over 10 million customers, $138 billion in retail deposits, an incredible consumer sentiment, 96% stickiness in our product portfolio. It's just an amazing story. And I always argue that I think it's one of the best turnaround stories in American business history, candidly. Yeah, it really is kind of crazy. And you're right. I mean, people don't today. I mean, my children would not understand. You mean, wait, I can't deposit the checks from my phone. <laughs> right. As you pointed out, like you started even before the iPhone. How did people actually deposit checks back then? Was it just sort of direct deposit predominantly or no? A lot of direct deposit. And then obviously when, as we launched at the same time that the smartphone did, so creating our mobile check deposit capability, But I think the bigger challenge was just selling the notion of convincing people that this was a safe place to send your money. You know, I always like to joke, like the challenge was trying to convince people they weren't sending their money to Joe's internet bank, um, (laughs) that it was a real place, FDIC insured, and really focusing on solving for customer pain points, which is really what differentiated us and set us apart, like creating emotion in a category aside from hatred, because at that time, everybody hated their bank. Yeah, that's true, right. We had the CMO, we had the, but you know, here's what people didn't see, and I didn't see this coming either, by the way, but it's sort of obvious, especially now. So we had the CMO of Citibank speak at an MMA event back in the early 2000 teens, maybe 213, 214, somewhere there. And she pointed out that the net promoter score for those who bank through Citi in the app was significantly higher than those who came into a branch. Yeah, doesn't surprise me. Doesn't surprise any of us today. No, you look at our customer sentiment, our customer sentiment is plus 90% positive. It's sentiment measured in in both social and our tracker. The category average is in the mid 30s. And so I think through a combination of big brand acts and just the digital offering, we've created something that's really special in this category that has huge advantage in many ways to traditional banking models. You know, it's funny you say that because I did see that Jamie Dimon the other day, he took over, a, which bank did he take over that's now, that's failed recently? Was it Signature Bank? First Republic. So he took over First Republic. It, it was funny, I noticed that in some of his comments, he was extolling the virtue of having gotten more branches. And I was like, wow, that doesn't, it's, I mean, I don't I don't know what goes on in those calls or what they do. But I thought, really? You're talking about getting more branches? I don't know that that makes any sense at all anymore. I do everything I can to avoid going to a branch, I think, right? So I know. Right. Well, you know, I mean, different business models, but I think our feeling is there's a role for the big money center banks, there's roles for regional banks, and there's roles for community banks. And that's the thing that people have to understand. The banking category is is safe. It's stable. There's roles for each. And, you know, Jamie Dimon understands that as much as our CEO understands that, as much as, you know, whoever the CEO of the local branch understands that there's a role for each one of those types of categories or companies within the category. And and it's important for everybody. 
I guess the final one, and I'll move on from this, I, but I do find it fascinating she took this job back then, right? Especially in those times. So what I'm curious about is, do you remember either what your husband or your friends, like those who were close to tell you you were crazy, did they tell you you were crazy or did, did others outside? I just don't remember the times as well. At the time, I didn't have a husband, so I didn't have anybody trying to tell me what to do. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> well, that's, that's one way to eliminate that. That's right. You know what, Greg? I look back at it now and I think I probably could not have done something at a more tumultuous time in my life. I was leaving Campbellywald after being there for 20 years. And really, it was the only thing I had ever known. I was a single mom with two kids. Yeah. It was the okay. middle of the financial crisis. And, you know, sadly, my, my brother was very ill and my parents and our family was dealing with that. He eventually passed away. But every single thing in my life was in complete chaos. And there was something about giving myself this opportunity to go and try something different that was important to me at that time. And I actually took a step backwards title wise. I took a really significant pay cut and I think for me, I looked at it as, when am I ever going to get a chance to help launch a 100-year-old startup and create a brand from the ground up? And if this doesn't work, you know what? I can, I can always be a greeter at Walmart. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, first off, I love the fact you had a backup plan to take care of the family. There you go. But I, <laughs> do you think you were more, I think what you're saying is you were more prone to make this change because of the swirling uncertainty around you in so many parts of your life, I guess. Is that what you're? Yeah, I just, I needed something fresh. I've never been, and it might be the athlete in me, anything that's a challenge, I run run into. You know, if there's a fire, I'm running into it. And I saw this as a fire. And I honestly believed in my heart of heart that there was an opportunity to create better banking. And we used this phrase all the time that the world doesn't need another bank, but it needed a better bank. And to be a part of changing the category forever, which is really what LA has done, is something that is more important than anything that I did in my career in the 20 years previous to that, candidly. Really? Really, yeah. And listen, you know, as an agency leader, you would have seen a lot of, dare I say, clever ideas by big corporations come along. Right. Maybe got traction, maybe didn't. I mean, you know, I worked in the agency business. There was, you know, we had a number of fails. My favorite was, I remember we um, we launched a product called Welch's Squeezables. It was jam in a squeezable container. It was amazing. And that's a revolution. Like when you can squeeze jam out, I mean, it was amazing. The problem with the t at the time was... <laughs> Oh my God, I'll never forget this. This is 30 plus years ago. The problem at the time was that they had such great early success that flew off the shelves. They went to market too fast. They didn't stick around to find out when you put in the refrigerator that unless the pectin amount was right, that then it would start to create a solid. And somebody actually sent us back, sent it to the company, to the brand, a bottle in a package with a brick and says, the shit doesn't come out. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's been long enough I could tell that story now. I don't think I've ever told it before, but it's like, listen, my point is that in the agency world, you see a lot of good ideas that just kind of go awry for a whole, it's hard to get any new business right, no matter what it is, even if it's a hundred years old. That's my point. So, yeah. You know, and there's such a big difference between being on the agency side and being at a brand and leading a brand and the opportunity to actually create meaningful change in business vis-a-vis being handed a product and saying, okay, go figure out how to market this. I always talk about, it's one of those moments you'll never forget. It's a seminal moment in your career where, you know, there were 10 of us that sat in a room 
and had a whiteboard and said, name off everything you hate about banking. Don't think like a banker. Don't think like a marketer. Just everything you hate about banking. And we wrote it on a wall and said, let's go attack these five things. And we did. And, and as I said, it's changed banking forever. So that spirit lives every single day at Ally. And I think it's a big part of the reason why I've been here for 15 years, which I can't believe. Okay. Now you didn't answer though, my original question exactly. Okay. Which was, did your friends, those who care about you tell you you were crazy or did they support you? No, no. Okay. Nobody said I was crazy. Everybody (laughs) thought it was no, honestly, like I I think everybody thought it was a really good move. And I think at the time, It was a little bit of an of an unheard of to go from the agency side to the brand side. And so I think there was some mystique in it where people were mm. like, wow, you're going to get to go be a client. That's pretty cool. So yeah, yeah. people in the industry were like, you're going to have a way easier life. Good for you. <laughs> did you know Sanjay at the time, by the way? I were didn't. Familiar I, with him from no, him? I didn't. Okay. And I got the opportunity yeah. to meet him at Ally. And I learned a ton from Sanjay. Sanjay is a really brilliant man and a good guy. And um, I'm forever grateful for the things that I took from his knowledge. And honestly, the way he treated me was was wonderful. He's emblematic of, I think, the best of the MMA board members, I should say, or those who get involved to the MMA, even at the board level, is that they tend to be of a questioning mind. Yeah, They believe at a basis there's something that could be done differently. And they pursue the execution of that. Because he was chair, I got to know him a little bit better. And some of the, I mean, there was a lot of things he tried to push through at Allstate that just, you know, were just really hard. And yet he stuck to it. Yeah, I really love that about him. Me okay. too. Hey, one more thing then about just your ally experience. I want to kind of move just current day here. Then we're going to get into kind of our main topic. You've done a thing around a 50-50 pledge, men and women's sports. Can you talk? I know this is a real passion for you. And and you're an athlete, by the way. Michigan State, four-year soccer, women's soccer, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Okay. Talk about your 50-50 pledge and explain to people what this means and what it is. Yeah. So I think last year was the anniversary of Title IX, the 50-year anniversary of Title IX, and we wanted to do something to honor that that was real and substantive. And we came up with this insight that less than 5% of the media coverage today goes to women's sports. And that has created this vicious cycle. And the vicious cycle is without access. The audience's can't find sports or be there. As a result, brands don't, you know, they don't have anything to invest in. And that has undervalued both the leagues and the players. So for instance, think about the NWSL, the National Women's Soccer League that we sponsor. Minimum player salary is $35,000 a year. And that's up 10 grand from two years ago. So imagine being a world-class athlete, an Olympian, a World Cup winner, making 35 grand a year. It's unconscionable. So for us, this opportunity to come in and make this pledge um, that we made live at the ESPNW Women's Summit, and we came out and kind of shocked the world by saying for every dollar we invest in men's sports media, we were going to match dollar for dollar in women's sports media. And I'm really proud of the fact that we made that pledge a year ago. We were spending less than 10% of our our sports media on women's sports. By the end of this year, we'll be closer to a 60-40 split still wood to chop, but we're going to get there. And beyond that, I think we are making significant and systemic change that is unlike really anything that I think a brand has ever done before, candidly. 
And the issue here is, Andrew, just to make sure we're clear, and by the way, we had Megan Rapino speak at the MMACO CMO Summit the year that they won, weeks after she won. It was amazing. She, uh, Kara Swisher came and interviewed her. It was really one of the highlights of the years of that event. But she talked a lot about how women's soccer players have second, they have jobs. Oh, yeah. Side hustles. Yeah. Professionals have real jobs they have to go to. You know, Greg, you'll hear stories that are break your heart of players getting traded and they don't have enough money to pay for plane tickets to take their kids with them. Right. Crazy. And those are real stories. So, Andrew, the issue is, just so everybody gets this, because, you know, listen, there's a part of me that wouldn't wonder, oh, well, you know, if I look at it a pure media sense, I go, oh, they don't have the audience, therefore they're not going to have the sponsorship dollars. Your point is that it starts much further back. It's not the sponsorship dollars that came first, although that's part of what you're trying to change, but it's really the media access by consumers. And when consumers have access audience builds. Absolutely. Look at the final four, you know, this year broadcast uh, on ESPN, the women's final four, the championship game outperformed the men's championship game by two and a half million viewers. And 58% of the audience was men. So this isn't a men versus women thing. This is a men and women thing. And there's a lot of men that want to watch women's sports as well. So look, I don't put the onus or the blame on the networks at all. I think it's a combined brands and networks. I mean, the networks, things have to pencil. They're under incredible duress. Things have to pencil. They need to know that there's going to be brand support there. And that's what the 50-50 pledge and the movement is about. Your point in that, tell me if I get this wrong, is that somebody has to make the first move to set this back on the right course. And you and Ally... And sort of kind of appropriate. I mean, it's sort of funny the word what the word ally now means in today's times. <laughs> I mean, Genius, I don't think, right? I, yeah, I don't think that I don't think that existed. I mean, that wasn't it wasn't this sort of tone today. But you know, I have teenage, well, slightly older than teenage children at this point. But uh, yeah, I mean, they're big into like you know, if they're if they're not uh, LGBTQ uh, whatever, then you know, they're allies. So, but it's really important to them that they support that cause. So yeah, it's kind of absolutely you got, you got very lucky with that name, I think, at some level. <laughs> well, you know, it was. I mean, it didn't. We didn't conjure up that at the time, but I think when we created the name, we wanted something that meant something literally as well as figuratively. And ally was purposeful in its selection because it is somebody that's in your corner always and people needed that financially but i with that comes great responsibility and we've always taken that really seriously as a company and as a brand and kind of i want to say taking on this fight of creating equity for women's sports is something that is exactly what an ally should do i love it i love it and you're right we as marketers are reflection of culture and influence culture and therefore have an additional level of responsibility then I don't, the finance people, whatever it might be. Okay. Andrew, let's get into kind of our, our main thing about uh, for building better CMOs. So I often like to ask a guest, what in your experience, your exposure to the world of marketing, do you think that either marketers don't fully under, understand and appreciate? Or where do you think there's, you could go at it from like, you know, where's there a knowledge gap that like, geez, we've just not answered, addressed this question but I think it's out there by everybody, but we, but we as an industry haven't evolved enough to get there. So what's, what, let's, let's throw out a thesis. You and I are going to probe into that some. Yeah. I mean, look, I think intuitively most marketers believe that there is interconnectivity between brand and performance marketing. In essence, brand can be performance and drive significant performance. I think where the knowledge gap has always been, has been empirically proving it beyond 
you know, what I'll call the softer measurements like awareness and consideration and things that you point to oftentimes, especially with your financial partners. And they're like, well, I hear what you're saying, but what does that do in terms of ROI? And so, you know, I think this thesis of labeling something brand or labeling something performance is probably something that we need to strike from our lexicon and we need to start thinking about the holistic ecosystem that you need to build around a consumer and have the research that backs up the fact that each component of that ecosystem plays a part in conversion ultimately. And I think the work we've done together around brand as performance has been seminal and I can't believe the amount of interest it's gotten from other marketers because everybody has been thirsting for this answer for a long time. You know my position on this. And so what Randy is referring to just for the listener is MMA has launched a study series we call Brand as Performance. Funny, by the way, we had originally positioned the board. I got shot down very quickly, brand versus performance, because that's how we heard the problem is that markers at the time, four some odd years ago, were trying to figure out how to balance between long and short term, and they had no dynamics and metrics to do that. And then quickly the board says, no, it's brand as performance. So that reset the whole thing for us. Well, how do we explain to the CFO the value of brand in a way that the business and the board could then choose to invest in it? That was kind of the thesis we've gone to. Andrew, just so I will confirm for you, and as I, there's not a listener on this call that it won't be just nodding their heads at this one, but you know, I talk to 100 CMOs in a year, give or take, right? There's not one of them that says, oh, that's not an issue here. Everybody says it's a discussion which is sort of the crazy thing that we as marketers have not answered or addressed that question in the way that we needed to, because we all believe, I mean, the intangibles on a balance sheet has proven the value of brand. We all, you know, we, we've seen that, but how to really operate against it. Before we get into maybe some of what you've learned from that, talk about why did you decide to take that on? You know, listen, it was experimental research. It'd never been done before. It was high risk. It's kind of expensive to execute. It's a lot of time and resources to commit from your team. I Sure, you just can't even imagine what that's turned out to be. Why decide to take that on? What was going on for you and Ally at the time? First, I, I have to give a shout out to my boss, JB, who's our CEO. He is a huge believer in investment in brand. And in fact, if you look at his, he outlines at the beginning of every year, you know, six to eight CEO priorities. And one of his priorities is the utilization of the brand as a strategic asset for the company and being a, a significant catalyst for growth. And so as a result of, of that as a strategic priority, Ally has invested heavily in, in what we'll kind of call our brand budget. In fact, the split between what sits in the enterprise budget and what sits in the product acquisition budgets is about 50-50. So we're spending as much to build the brand as we are to build product acquisition. And while, you know, he's not ever asked me directly, like prove the point, because he intuitively believes in it, I feel like I owe him and I owe our CFO and I owe the enterprise and our shareholders empirical data that it's working, candidly, just being a good steward of company resources. And I've searched for all eight years that I've sat in this chair as CMO to find a good way to truly answer that question other than what I'll call more of the softer metrics. You know, we've looked at brand valuation growth. Well, marketing is not the only component of brand valuation growth. We've looked at awareness. Great. Awareness is a function of spend. 
We kind of all know that. Consideration. Consideration can be affected by so many macroeconomic factors. You know, you have a bank failure and consideration for your brand can fall by 10 points and you haven't done one thing differently. So squish your stuff. And when I saw this opportunity with the MMA, I thought it's going to be a heavy lift. There's definitely investment in it from a financial standpoint. But if we can get to a real answer and combine this with other things we're doing, like multi-touch attribution, and be able to combine that data, what a powerful thesis that we will have to put forward with empirical proof around this idea that brand is performance and you can't have one without the other. I love the ownership of responsibility for that in spite of the fact that nobody else has been asked. I mean, what the audience may or may not be fully aware, when I first heard this issue and it was in advance of the pandemic because we were ready to rock and roll on this in the, in the beginning of the pandemic that we shut it down because I don't know if you know that, Andrew, we actually were ready to go. We had yeah. this thing teed up to go on March in 2000 of the pandemic. And we just said, we just can't start long-term research in the middle of like, what is one? We just don't know what's going on, what campaigns are going to look like. We just can't tell if we're going to get a good read. So we shut the whole thing down and then had to go resell it all and go down. But the issue was, it's just prior to that, we discovered two things. One, everybody was talking about it. There was a tension in organizations. But the worst problem was that there was no off-the-shelf methodology to do this research. It did not exist. And at some basic level, it didn't require travel to Mars. It required new math and thinking about how to do data collection in a substantive way. And there, you know, I want to give a hats off to, uh, you know, Les Binet and Peter Field out of the UK who've done some work around this, but we felt it needed a stronger new data set to make the kind of investment. So it was courage on your part to do it. I guess it's, you know, what you're in essence saying is that it was your dynamic as a uh, longstanding innovator to look for new and not to be satisfied, which you easily could have done after 10 plus years in the job, I guess, <laughs> right? right? <laughs> and candidly, you know, nobody pounding on the door for something more definitive. But I just think that given the level of investment we have in it, it is requisite that we answer the question. And I wanted to know myself. I think as a CMO, I, every single day, you have to look at what you're investing in and be able to put your head on the pillow at night and sleep well that you're making the right decisions on behalf of your shareholders and your company. So let's talk a little bit, just I, I'm sure the listeners are kind of like, okay, we'll get to the facts. Like, okay, so what did you learn? Why don't you give a summary of some of what you learned so far? Let's do that. And then I'm going to go back to some of the dynamics of pulling off this kind of research. First, I would tell you, this was not like, oh, we went and talked to a thousand people and made some assumptions. There are 850,000 people in this data set over a period of time. And basically what we did is we served one group a healthy dose of what I would call brand digital creative, more focused at higher level messaging versus before they saw performance creative. And then we served the other group, just performance oriented creative, what I'll call more product acquisition by now type of creative. And we saw a substantive lift in those that were moved to favorability through this brand creative, both in terms of 7x more efficient to acquire those consumers. Hey, Andrew, just to be clear, so once they've been converted to favorable, yes, it was one-seventh the cost to get them to move to customer or, or you know. Acquisition, product acquisition, exactly. Three and a half times more apt to convert than those that only saw the performance creative. And then the thing that I think was the most interesting to me, Greg, was 
the fact that if you think about it, a steady diet of brand creative has a long tail effect, pays almost an annuity, if you will, where we saw that short term, if you only serve people performance creative, they will convert faster, but over time they will drop out and drop off your funnel. Whereas those that are seeing a steady dose of brand creative long-term will open more products and convert at a higher rate. And so what we learned from this is that there are times where you need to do things promotionally. Hey, go get me $2 billion in deposits. And you know what? It's two weeks of just performance-oriented creative and does the trick. But if you're playing long game, this idea of brand pays out over the long run at a much more effective and efficient rate than you know, investing your entirety of your budget in performance-oriented messaging is only. Correct. And I think with the team, so just uh, so people know, we only ran the research from one year to another. That was our long term. I think it was probably a little less than that, nine, 10 months. So we have accurate read exactly on the buying behavior of those people over that time exposed to brand. We know exactly what they did. And that's what's just so people know what had never been done before was tracking the same people over that period of time. The scale of it was just insurmountable. In fact, it's funny, Andrew, I don't know, I probably didn't tell you this in the process of explaining the original research idea to you. We told Google we wanted to go after this, and they said, we love the idea, we think it's amazing, you really should. By the way, we don't think you can pull it off. That was their analysis. <laughs> we are like, well, okay, it's there a big question, we should try. That was my conclusion at the time. Yeah. But um, I think, too, what they did, I think what you're referring to there, so correct me if I get this wrong, but I think that if you model out performance and model out brand, over a two-year period, again, we're modeling now. We're making some projections, just to be fair to everybody, versus the facts that Andrea just spoke to, is that I think brand outperform total sales of that period by plus 40%. It Wasn't that kind of one of the conclusions we got to? That was. It was this whole notion of the annuity That's over amazing. time. Which is incredible, and at a more efficient rate as well. Correct. So your cost of acquisition comes down, and the lifetime value of that customer significantly goes up because they're consuming more of your product set as well. The ability to cross-sell them increases. So I think, for me, what it did, it solidified perception that we all had. It solidified the intuition that marketers have always had with the first real empirical data. And then when you take that yeah. data and you overlay it, if you have multi-touch kind of installed at your company, when you start to lay that in, then you're able to make really great media optimization decisions. And that's a big part of the way that we're using the combination of the MMA data and the MTA data right now is to make our media optimization decisions. And one of the things that we've learned recently is that 80% of all of our product acquisitions so far this year has started with a brand touch. Oh, you know that now. Wow. We know that now. Wow. So it's pretty incredible. And so, you know, we're able to see the touches through the journey. At the time of recording here in the middle of June, this information is at most three months old. Have you had a chance to really take it internally and talk to outside of marketing about this yet? And or what has been some of the reaction? And, and I think what I'd like to try to figure out is like, what change do you think might be created as a result of this information now in the guts of the company? Uh, definitely had a chance to sit down and take JB through it. Um, we're going to take our board through it in August, which I'm excited for. We've got a new CFO starting oh, wow. in a couple of weeks. And 
honestly, this is like the first slide I'm going to show him <laughs> as we talk about. <laughs> yeah, I, listen, I speak your talk. I want you to know. <laughs> yeah. well, there's another project of MMAs that we're doing. It's like, how do we help the CMO and the CFO get along? Exactly. Marketers are from Mars. We need to fix that. But yeah, okay, got it. Well, you know, I mean, I think it'll be great for us as he comes into a new world to understand why we make the investments that we do. Totally. And so, yes, we've shown a lot of people, the businesses, et cetera. But like I said, I'm in a lucky position because philosophically, everybody at Ali believes in brand investment and it's not questioned. That said, the way that I've used it has been really powerful because we're making media optimization decisions based on the combination of the MMA data and the MTA data. And so, you know, we didn't just do the study and now it's over. The MMA data is being used every single day because we've got those 850,000 people in our ecosystem. And we've got the people that we actually converted as a result of the test that we're watching their behavior and we're watching how to make optimizations within them and looking at really tailoring our media plan around this notion of finding more favorables and that kind of that movable middle, if you will, that we've talked a lot about as opposed to optimizing out of places that you know that you have people that are unfavorable that will never convert. And I think those were some of the things that have changed our media mix and changed the way that we thought about going to market. Let's take a quick break. We'll be back after this with Andrea Brimmer. Thanks for listening to Building Better CMOs. If you have a second, I'd like to ask a quick favor. Take your phone out and share this episode with someone else. It's all about making marketers better. You could text it to a coworker or a friend, easy. Or you can post it on LinkedIn and tell people why you liked it. There's one other thing that you can do to help Building Better CMOs, and that's to leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. There's a link to do it in the show notes. However you support us, I really appreciate it. Thank you. This is Greg Stewart. Now back to the show. This is Building Better CMOs. Let's get back to my conversation with Andrea Bremer, the Chief Marketing and PR Officer of Ally Financial. You know, it's funny. I've often said, and I, I don't know if I'm right as a thesis I have now, but I think marketers have a sense of arrogance in our ability to manipulate all consumers to come to our brand. <laughs> and that's just not true. I don't right. know. Maybe that's the wrong way to put it. That's a little cynical. But I just think we get so excited that if we run enough ads, it's okay. But it's really not going to. There are some consumers that for a variety of reasons are never going to come over to the brand, no matter what we do. And so every dollar we invest there is a dollar invested not to either build more favorables or to create more customers and more acquisition. Look, especially in my category, because there is a compendium of people that will never want to bank digitally. Yeah, Finding those people, eliminating marketing to those people that are unfavorable towards the notion of digital banking is a significant cost save that I can reinvest to convert more people that are open and are favorable. So for us, this thing has been landmark. And I'm excited because we've got other brands coming along. I know we've got Kroger and Campbell's are in. And so I will be super interested to see how it's going to perform in other categories and then to utilize that data to see if there a way to make us smarter and vice versa. Hey, Andrew, I don't know if you know, you mentioned MTA a couple of times. So by the way, yes, I have the playbook on this because um, I don't know if you know, I actually, in some regards, co-founded multi-touch attribution. 
I mean, Rex Briggs is the guy who's a scientist. I don't want to take anything away from the brilliance that he brought to the table to do that. But somebody had to popularize that. And I remember going to the point of trying to get everybody to believe a new way of measurement that wasn't, in some regards, medium X modeling, which had been the sort of the standard for too many years. So it's hard to get sort of this change in the industry into it. Hey, Andrew, let me ask you another question, by the way. I kind of want to give you a big shout out here because you have chosen to be public about this and share the insights broadly. That takes a certain amount of courage, I guess, or I don't know, not everybody's willing to play that role in the industry. Why have you? Um, Because I think that we have a responsibility to one another as marketers to make each other better and to help with the problems that face our industry and help with the challenges that we have in our jobs. And to me, there's nothing in the data that I would look at that I'm shy about sharing or that I think gives away any ally confidentialities. And so, you know, my team has literally sat down and taken CMOs at other banks through it. Oh, wow. As well as CMOs at multiple companies. I had a young woman come up to me that was a CMO at a credit union in Jacksonville at the possible conference. And she's like, this is exact conversation I've been having since I've gotten in my role. And this is data that's wonderful. And is there any chance that your team would take me through it? And The team sat down with her, just a community bank in Jacksonville, Florida, and took her through the research results. And so if we can be helpful in more and more people understanding the thesis and being able to use the data to make their own cases, it only lifts the knowledge of the industry and the power of what we do as marketers. That's kind of a good segue then too, Andrew. Let's talk a little bit about sort of... um Well, listen, a lot of people probably want to have your job and we're all making this sound pretty good right now, right? I mean, you know, you- I don't know if anybody wants my job. (laughs) Well, well, (laughs) yeah, it's funny you say that. I remember as a very young person in the agency business looking up at my boss and say, ooh, I definitely don't want their job. (laughs) I mean, it took me a dozen years. I finally moved outside of the agency business, but, but nonetheless, I do remember thinking that. But let's assume there's a couple of people and at least there's a couple striving for to have more influence, to create more change. Maybe it's just from a monetary standpoint. I don't care how they want to get there. But sitting in the role that you have, I mean, there's a lot of challenges to that. One, you're faced with, as we said here, making a lot of decisions on big money. I mean, you publicly state what the ally marketing budgets are. No, we don't. It's a big number. (laughs) It's a very big number. I don't. It's a healthy number. Yeah, healthy number. There we go. <laughs> Maybe talk a little about your career path. Like you said, you came in working with Sanjay originally, then he eventually moved on. You end up getting a top spot. I don't know if you were really ready for that. Moving from the agency to the brand side is complicated. I left the agency to go over to the marketer side. That was a tough challenge, I remember. Talk a little bit about your experience in doing that and how you show up for those kinds of experiences. The hard transition for me was going agency side to brand side. And keep in mind, when I came over to... GMAC, I was marketing employee number three. And Ouch. yeah, so wow. it was small. How big was your team at Campbell Ewald, by the 500 way? Do you remember? People. 500 people. 500 <laughs> people. So it was a huge wow. change. And I think at that time you, we had fax machines still. Yeah, right, I, I had no, a no, typewriter when I started at Campbell Ewald on my desk, and that is no exaggeration. <laughs> I remember and that. Yeah, hell yeah, we had fax machines <laughs> and bag phones. <laughs> Uh, and we had a dress code. We had to, the women had to wear a dress with nylons. It was specific in the, uh, in the handbook. Oh so my God. Think about that. Oh my God. That's hard to believe, isn't it? It's so funny. Nylons. Okay. Exactly. That always cracks me up. That was a scarier transition for me, for sure. Because when you're at an agency, 
you turn around and there's a lot of people behind you. You've got a creative director, you've got a strategy lead, you've got a producer, you've got all these people. So there's this net around you. You screw up, there's a safety net that's going to catch you. I underestimated the bigness of coming brand side and somebody saying with no direction, okay, go write a business plan for why you need your marketing budget by yourself. And so that was a big transition. And then when I moved into the CMO role, after Sanjay left and a few years after I had been at Ally, we had 40 people in marketing. 40, that was it. We had, you won't believe this, Greg. I had one person in digital marketing, one. Kevin Howard, who you know. Oh, I do know Kevin. <laughs> no social media. There was no social media. The Ally had no social channels. Uh, minimal. I had insignificant. Yeah. Not paid. No yeah. CRM. None. Oh my God. We didn't do any CRM. There was no data and analytics team. None. We sponsored no events, no sports marketing. There were no sponsorships. I had no operations team. And so in my tenure, we've built the entire infrastructure basically from the ground up. And that's been hard. Today, we sit over 260 people across literally every discipline, inclusive of PR, which was very new to me. I didn't know anything about PR. I'd never had a PR job before. And so navigating through <laughs> social injustice, <laughs> COVID, bank failures, crisis du jour, you know, has definitely been a steep learning curve. And oftentimes you're just kind of having to, to make best decisions based on your experiences. So it's been a wild journey. And then I think it's a constant state of evolution and learning. Look, three years ago, there was no AI. Three years ago, there was no metaverse. I mean, every day there's some new, what are we talking about now? That you got to go learn and figure out. Changes all the time. But what's it mean for you to be in a senior executive role when people are kind of counting on you? I don't know, they're counting on you to know those things, to provide leadership around those things. Will you encourage people to want your job? <laughs> First of all, I think I have the best job in marketing, period, bar none. So I really believe that. I have a great brand, a great company, a great boss, uh, a lot of autonomy, and it's a great gig. I have an amazing team, and there's value in that. The human capital aspect I love, and just the enthusiasm and, the, and what the team brings every single day is super energizing to me. But I think to answer your question, with great privilege comes <laughs> great pressure. And there's a lot of times where you, you know, I allocate about a third of my time just to have an active learning agenda. You got to go deep on stuff. I had to spend a lot of time learning generative AI, chat GPT, even the things that are happening in the financial services category, you know, whether it's been the digital money movement, whether it's been things like Bitcoin, whether it's blockchain, Nobody taught me that in school, right? <laughs> hey, Andrea, so wait, you commit 12, maybe more hours a week? Absolutely. To trying to be active, a day and a half of really active learning is, I think, what you just said. Is that right? Wow. That's exactly what I said. And it, well, it, well, that's a real commitment. I don't have time to read ad age and, you know, newsletter in the morning. Well, for me, it's a combination of things between getting up super early and doing as much reading as yep. I can, or literally reaching out to people that I admire who are doing amazing things and learning from them, spending time with my peers. I've got a great CIO who's very active in MMA, Satish M, who I think you know. 
And yeah. I learn a ton from Satish. But even, you know, like I just had a, an all hands for my team. We had several speakers that came in and just talked about AI and chat GPT and generative AI and went really, really deep on that. I dedicated, you know, we've been super active in gaming, Greg. I've hired a gaming team two and a half years ago, right before COVID that do nothing but build out our gamification platform. And we just launched a really cool kind of what I would call web 2.5 in Fortnite called Ally Arena. That's incredible. You know, these are the kinds of things that, yeah, if you don't have an active learning agenda, you can't lead. I love the commitment to that to kind of stay ahead out on, hey, listen, we'd be remiss not to ask you, what are you doing around AI, generative AI, however you want to approach it? What is part of your either learning or where you're heading to, you know, either one. What do you know? What do you think you got to go figure out and get to know? A number of things. One, we've gone deep. We're lucky within our agency, Anomaly, they have a very deep expertise around AI. There's a guy there named Chris Neff who is brilliant, and we've spent a ton of time with Chris just spending days, honestly, at, at Anomaly, playing around with the technology, understanding the technology, going deep, listening to experts around that. And so what we've done is we've created a task force within my team of about 10 people that have been given different assignments around just playing with the technology and understanding it and figuring out how it can make us more effective, more efficient, not be a replacement for human capital, but make human capital better and make us better as marketers. We're already using a lot of it for things like chat, you know, virtual assistants, those kinds of things. But look, if it can make us faster relative to content creation, that's a great use case for it. If it can help us with automation and take away tasks that are painful for marketers around budgeting, around compliance related issues, around loading things into systems. So you've got campaign trackers and give us more time to market and communicate, then great. And those are the things that we're experimenting with right now. By the way, Dan, I just made it confirm you're positive on AI and its future and its application to business and marketing. I don't think we have a choice. It's not going to go away. <laughs> you're not going to put this genie back in the bottle. Fair enough. And so I think you have to figure out what the best way to use it and not let it scare you and kind of overwhelm you. I was at Michigan State a couple of weeks ago and I spoke at a class and it was the number one question I got from every single student. The number one question. How'd they phrase the question? Is AI going to take my job? Will I have something when I get out? How are you thinking about it? What do I need to know about it? How can I use it to my advantage? And you've got universities right now wrestling with students that are turning in chat GPT written papers. Totally. Is that plagiarism? Is it not plagiarism? Mm, I think the questions are unclear on that. In my experience, is it just a tool that we use? We certainly didn't tell people to handwrite everything when word processors came along, did we? Exactly. And these are the things that we're wrestling with as a society. And so, yeah, I mean, where I come out on it is we better learn pretty damn quick how to work with it and not let it work against us. Let's go back a little bit to you are an athlete, as I mentioned earlier, full on college level. Congratulations. Thank you. I think I've heard you describe yourself as tenacious. Is that what you used? Tenacity. Was that that was your (laughs) virtue? Did I hear that somewhere? I would definitely say tenacious is a word that could be associated (laughs) with me. (laughs) Okay, so you're a little bit driven. I've heard other people describe it as, you know, type A bold underline. Maybe that's where it is. (laughs) That's me for sure. But um, whatever. 
but what's it mean to sort of operate at a regular basis at this level, to keep up with the other C-suite executives, to, you know, there's tensions in organizations. You use the word pressure. There's pressure, certainly, when things got to be delivered. There's a lot of expectations. You don't always have control of everything all the time. It's not all plotted, planned out like you might like in every situation. The world shifts and changes. I don't know. How do you manage that? I don't want to call it stress because stress is an attitude, not a job requirement. But um, how do you manage that situation and keep focused and stay alert? Other than sort of, I love your learning agenda. That's a great one. What else? You know, look, it's an unrelenting pace and I travel a ton. You know, I'm gone almost every single week and it's a lot. You have to find ways to make sure you're keeping yourself mentally and physically strong. And so, you know, I think for me, dedication of time to myself, no matter what, whether that means get an hour run in or take the dogs for a walk, even if it's the middle of chaos or go on a girl's trip and decompress or go and get a massage. I learned a long time ago to stop feeling guilty for finding time for myself. And there are times where I've been gone Monday through Friday, I get home on Friday and I'm packing and my husband's like, where are you going? I'm like, I'm going on a girl's trip this weekend. And he's like, well, you just got back. You've been gone all week. I'm like, I was gone for work. You learn it with age that the only way to thrive and survive is to find that time for yourself. And so I do that and I have no guilt around it. And it's really helped me just that little moments of decompression to refocus. Honestly, like my team hates when I go for a run because I come back and I've got like five ideas that I want people to run down. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Yeah, I get that too. The worst thing you can do is give me a weekend to think about something. That's never good for anybody on the team. Exactly. It just frees your mind. So, you know, I think as you find those moments, I get a lot of joy out of, I live on the water. I get a lot of joy out of just being on the boat, even by myself and floating. And I'm a big animal person. So being with my dogs or getting a chance to go find time and spend time with my kids, they re-energize me and they're all adults and out of the house. And so those moments of being with them is energizing as well. I agree with you, by the way, I'm on water here now. It's really, it's just, it's unbelievably nice. It makes, I think it makes all the difference sort of both living in the city and here. Uh, What are the dogs, by the way? I'd be remiss for the dog lovers not to ask what kind of dogs. (laughs) I have my girl, Queen Xena, and uh, she's a pit bull that we rescued during COVID. And then I've got a 16-year-old old guy, Rover, and he's a beagle mix. We had as many as four dogs down to two, but my post-retirement dream, Greg, is to buy 100 acres of land. And I've got four or five friends, including Alex Bowman, who's our NASCAR driver that we sponsor at Ally, that are all going to um, start a dog rescue. Well, so funny. I did not see this coming. Yeah. If you need somebody to work on that for you, I happen to have a daughter who is a total animal nut and just graduated with a degree in animal science. So as soon as you're ready, you let me know. Love it. She, oh yeah. Love it. My son is in uh, veterinary school at Michigan State. Great. So I'm excited about that. But, you know, I have a very soft spot for all the dogs that nobody wants, the old dogs, the pit bulls who have a horrible reputation and are the sweetest dogs in the world. And that would be my dream. I seriously have about four or five friends that have all, we're starting to think about putting a business plan around this together, looking for some property and figuring out how to get this done. My daughter is obsessed with pit bulls for the same reason you just said, exactly. 
Oh my goodness. Who knew? Okay. Well, listen, you let me know when you need help and you know, she's available. Right. I'm sure she'll she's be there in. in 10 minutes. So <laughs> she's in. <laughs> <laughs> okay. okay. It's great to see how you sort of manage this and have been so successful for so long in doing it. It's no small feat. Thank you, Greg. It's just a lot of complexities to business. It's simple and yet it's not a lot of times and you can really get yourself sideways. I think the only advantage somewhat being older is you get a little bit of pattern recognition. You know, you know what? It's not going to be so bad. Like it's probably going to be okay. Or maybe this is the end. I don't know. We'll see. I've dealt with that too. Let's just keep going, everybody. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> really my favorite phrase of the team, the MMA team knows is like, all right, everybody, it doesn't look good right now. Everybody pick up an oran row. Let's go. <laughs> Get ourselves out of this if we can. Okay. Exactly. Uh, listen, just in sort of lightning round. So uh, pick a person or anybody in marketing, can be marketing, could be a brand if you want it, could be a recent campaign you've seen. Who do you kind of admire now? Anybody kind of top of mind? You can just pick anybody out there. Give a little reason why. There's actually, a, the, it's going to be kind of a funny answer, but there's two kind of movements, if you will, right now in marketing that I admire. One is the Savannah Bananas. Oh, it's very interesting what they've done. I think it's pretty phenomenal. Yeah. It's genius. And what they have created is absolutely incredible. And then I give a ton of credit to Liquid Death and what Liquid Death has done. They're just doing brilliant brilliant work. And I would venture to guess on kind of a shoestringish budget. I admire challenger brands. I still think about us as a challenger brand. And I think that it's fascinating. I'm always fascinated and have huge admiration for people that find really creative ways to relevantly punch above the weight. And I use that word relevantly on purpose because anybody can be disruptive. Oftentimes it's completely irrelevant. If you do it consistently and persistently in a relevant way, that's a whole nother level of genius. I totally agree. You know, listen, the great, I got to speak to a CFO conference a number of years ago, and I basically told them that procurement was killing the business. And my thesis was that they're missing the value of a little extra money in creative and thinking more about the big idea and what that could mean. And to any sort of limitation you give to that is usually, I think, probably money. Any limitation is not money well spent. If you can double down yeah. and come up with a bigger idea, it makes all the difference. Exactly. Just keep striving for that. Brilliant. I love it. Okay. What's a little bit overhyped in marketing right now? You get, want to pick on anything? You think, ah, I think we're a little over our skis on this one. We've gone too far. We think it's too big a deal. I don't know. I'm not there yet. Where you Metaverse. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? I feel like I should take the question out because everybody picks on Kellen just did Metaverse too the other day. That's the excitement of a few months ago that's getting kicked around too much right now, right? Yeah. Look, I, I mean, I think it's a different, you got to look at it differently. I don't think the Metaverse is going to go anywhere. It's relevant use right? It's, it all comes back to relevant use. And one of our board members asked me one day, do you really think someone's going to come into the metaverse and like, you know, want to put on an Oculus set and have an interaction with a banker? And, you know, it's a good question. Like, no, probably not. But if there's utility, there's a way to provide utility in the web 2.5 space or the, eventually when we kind of get to web 3.0, then yeah, that's important. But I think all the hype around first brand of the metaverse, first bank in the metaverse, first this in the metaverse, like who cares? <laughs> so. We tied too many things to the concept, right? It became metaverse, crypto got kind of thrown into that blockchain for sure. And then web three. So I think web three is real, but um, we still have a lot of sorting out to do when it gets to actual metaverse. And if we're going to live our lives in a virtual sort of way yet. So I got gotcha. you. Okay. Yeah. And then if you want me to give you a different one too, Greg, I give you an overhyped. Go ahead. We way 
fixate too much in marketing on on awarding ourselves. <laughs> oh, oh you really got to put awards. a stake in our heart on this one, right? Is that you're going right for it? We got to just chill on it. It's become oversaturation and they're losing relevance. And I think it puts a bullseye on marketers' backs I totally agree. as we talk about this internally with the C-suite and you talk about that MPS score oftentimes for marketing. Like, I just think we got to take a breath, step back and refocus on what's important right now. I had a CFO actually say to me at one point, he goes, my CFO doesn't go to that many events and doesn't spend that much time getting awards. And just kind of the comment just hung there in the air. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm sure. I think they were right about that. Listen, I think it's good. And I appreciate that too, because it's really the thesis of MMA. Like, you know, what are we doing to drive real substance of value back to the brand and the shareholders and the enterprise at large? And what do we do to use marketing as a more powerful tool? How do we unlock its value even more? The good news is that there's still a lot of room to get better. Okay. How about underappreciated marketing? You want to pick on something underappreciated thing that people maybe aren't seeing yet? I don't know. I do truly believe that marketing is underappreciated for the significant role it creates in terms of being a catalyst for growth. And I had somebody say to me once, I used to think marketing was a nice to do until I saw what it actually did and realized that it's a have to do. And there are too many people that still think it's a, it's a nice to do. It's not a new concept. And I'm sure a million people before have said this to me, but I just think changing the narrative around our own industry is critically important. And honestly, it's why I find value in the work that you're doing, because I think it's real and it makes us better, which is why we need to be part of trade organizations. My thesis of the MMA is that there just isn't an entity out there that's really trying to improve the overall practice of the industry. And we need to raise our game. We're a little bit too hobbyish and not enough of a profession. Like, listen, my wife sells real estate. She has to get certified every year, two years again, and go through a series of dozens of hours of classes. Right. We don't have that. No. (laughs) We don't have that in our business. And yet our budgets are significantly bigger. Right. It's why I look at things like FEs and something that's measuring effectiveness versus, you know, a little bit of what you're seeing at Con. If you read this morning, Ad Age talking about how all the purpose driven work is the stuff that's winning. I think just getting back to the touchstone of effectiveness in this business is so critically important. And effectiveness, again, can be brand, it can be purpose. But it has to be relevant and it has to affect change in a significant way. And so I think marketing goes through these ebbs and flows and these adjustments on a continual basis. And we all kind of gravitate towards one concept or another at the same time. But just getting back to the touchstone of relevancy and effectiveness and why we do what we do is the most important narrative that needs to be consistent and persistent. And that is to grow the business. That's right. We don't exist if, you know, there's no need for us if we don't grow the business. You know, there's a great study done by Kim Whitler. I, I'm pretty sure Neil Morgan, Dr. Neil Morgan was involved in this. So Dr. Kim Whitler, Dr. Neil Morgan, just credentialized with it. They did a study they presented at the MMA CEO Summit a few years ago. When a marketer is on the board of directors, those companies sales are 3% higher than when a marketer is not on there. That's awesome. Because when you have finance and venture and equity people, then they're managing mitigating risk. But uh, marketers are saying, well, yeah, but, you know, let's take care of that. But what are we doing to grow? Yeah, yeah. really I interesting. I think it's the conversation. Very funny. Okay, last one. What's the one thing you would give? What's, you know, somebody listening to be a better CMO. What's the advice you give them, Andrew? If you were to give advice to those following you, what would it be? Be brave. 
Be brave. Yeah, great. Bravery has been the hallmark of my career. And I think oftentimes we kind of bend to whims of people because we get filled with trepidation and there's no real room for that. And you just always have to remember, like, you're employable. It doesn't work out someplace. You're going to find something somewhere else. Good people always do. I often don't regret what I do. I regret what I didn't do. Yeah, I love that. And it's usually a lack of bravery or a sense of fear at the moment that sort of holds you back. Exactly. Andrea, you're great. It's been so much fun getting to know you. I can't thank you enough for the leaning in that you've done with the MMA and the leadership of the industry. I mean, you know, it's totally recognized by everybody. So on behalf of the entire market industry, I thank you. But mostly just for me, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Thanks. It's been with great pleasure, Greg. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Oh, thanks again to Andrea Brimmer from Ally for coming on Building Better CMOs. Check the show notes for links to connect with Andrea. If you want to know more about MMA's work to unlock the power of marketing, visit MMAglobal.com, or you can attend any one of our 30 conferences in 15 countries where MMA operates, or just write to me, greg at MMAglobal.com. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you're new to the show, please follow or subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Amazon, iHeart, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can find links to those places and more at bettercmos.com. Our producer and podcast consultant is Eric Johnson from lightningpod.fm. Building Better CMOs researcher is Anita Polovska. Artwork is by Jason Chase. And a very special thanks to LaSara Smith. This is Greg Stewart. I'll see you in two weeks.